Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. We read this, this verse last week. I'm going to read it again, and we'll, we'll build on what we said last week here. So, Verse 21 says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto the disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Switch microphones there. That last verse, I'm not going to, now it's loud. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about that last verse Today, um, it really ties in with the, the beginning of the next chapter. And so we'll focus on, on the earlier part of this passage. Verse 21 starts with this statement, from that time forth. And so from what time? And I mentioned last week, this is right after Peter, as a spokesman for the disciples, proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God. He acknowledged that that is who he really believed that Jesus was. And so from that moment, from the point of them acknowledging him as the Son of God, Jesus then began to add to what he was teaching them. And he began, so from that time forth, to show them what was coming, what the rest of the plan of him being there as the Messiah was actually going to look like. And it's, we've, I've said many times, it's not the picture that they had in their mind. Israel was looking for a conqueror, someone who was going to liberate them from Rome, and they were going to become the ruling nation. They were looking for a leader that was coming to reign as king. But that wasn't the first coming of the Messiah. That's the second coming of the Messiah that they were looking for. They missed this part of it. It was there. It's, we look back in scripture and we see it very clearly. But they missed it. And so this is the part that the disciples were not aware of. And this is what Jesus now begins to really make clear to them that this is the plan. This was God's plan right from the beginning. 
the scripture says several things, and just to vaguely quote a couple of scriptures, it says, for him that has shall be given. So when we start to acknowledge God at a certain level, when we accept a truth that God has presented towards us, he will then add to that truth. And we can grow in our knowledge of him. But first we have to accept that first level. And so when the disciples proclaim him as the son of God, he can now add to that and build on that. Scripture also says line upon line, upon line here a little, little, there a little, precept upon precept. It's talking about the way that we grow in our knowledge of God. And much of the Bible likens it to building some kind of physical structure, a building of some sort, and we have to build on a foundation. We don't start putting up the walls of a building before there's a foundation put there first. That would be the wrong order. And so we need a foundation. And this is the critical foundation that the disciples needed was to acknowledge who Jesus is. Acknowledge that he is the Son of God. From that foundation, he could then begin building that structure, and that framework of what that really meant, where that was going to lead. And so we can start to see things coming together. I worked very briefly um, with a, a guy from one of our, the churches we were going to um, as a trim carpenter. We were installing kitchens and doing window and door trim and that kind of thing. Do you know what? Those trim carpenters don't go in as soon as the building gets framed. <laughs> that would be pointless, right? We have to wait until the drywallers are done, until the, the flooring guys are done. That place is nearly finished when the trim carpenter goes in to do his job. And so when, as a Christian or as a, a new believer, I don't get all the finishing details and the whole picture right at the beginning. We have to build on that foundation. We have to build the structure. We have to understand some basic things about God before we can get those fine details all put together and get the whole picture at the end. Again, I worked at Bombardier, again, very briefly. Um, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't handle that one. But uh, my, my job that uh, I got put into, they called butterflies. I was working on the GO trains that are a bi-level train car, and I was installing all the finishing stuff around the stairwell at the end of the car um, between the two levels. And for the life of me, I can't picture where that piece went, but there was a, a panel that almost looked like a butterfly. There's two wide parts that joined with a narrow part that goes somewhere in that stairwell, which is why it ended up being called butterflies. But I, my job was that entire area of the car, I had to do all of the finishing parts of it. And in doing that, I remember one time, one of the very first cars that we did um, I think I was still being trained at that point. We went in and we did a whole bunch of installation. And the next day we get there, and the guy, two stations prior to us, 
shows up and tells us, you got to pull all that out. I haven't got my parts to put in behind all that trim yet. <laughs> there was an air conditioning unit that was supposed to go in that compartment that we had just completely enclosed. And so we had to completely undo the work. Because you can't do the finishing touches prior to the stuff that needs to be there first. And that's really this, the basis of scripture is we need a foundation. We need some basic truths about God before we can really put it all together. When it comes to salvation, I'm thinking it was um, new tribes. I could be mistaken on the mission. Um, Julie Arnold was here a few weeks ago, presented. They've changed their name, but... Um, some of these missionaries, when, when they go into a new tribe that has never heard anything about this book, the God of the Bible, they don't walk in and tell, preach a gospel message of Jesus died on the cross and he paid for your sins and, and then have an altar call and have a... The whole crowd would come and repeat whatever sinner's prayer you told them to repeat. And you could walk out of there saying, "Yo, we had 50 souls get saved today. They don't do that. Because you can't get salvation. You can't understand the gospel message without some basic truths and basic understanding about who God is prior to that. They literally take, I believe it was a full year, teaching through, starting in Genesis, teaching in the beginning God, teaching that God is the creator, that one God only. And they teach through the Bible, and then they get to Christ, and they teach his birth, and they teach his life and his ministry, and then his sacrifice. And when they get to that, the people have enough of a foundation that now we're, we're putting the trim on, right? We're, we're, we're putting the finishing touches, so now we have the whole picture, and I can understand what that trim was intended to do. <laughs> I can understand what the sacrifice was for. I can understand my need for a Savior when I understand who God is and my sin in relation to that. And so there's a big picture that needs to be built prior to just giving the gospel, and, and that was something that we would see in our camp ministry. Uh, we saw it in the youth um, at one of our churches that we were going to for a while. And it's much like our family. Most of the families there had been in the church prior to having children. Um, and when you're a Christian home, you know, Deadman's us and many of you guys, if you are raised in a Christian home, Emily, you've experienced this, you, Darren who is also homesick today. Um, Darren went to church before he came home from the hospital. That is when we started teaching him who God is. That is when we started laying that foundation. And so when you start at that age, and you're, the only bedtime stories that these kids hear is Bible stories. By the time they're four or five years old, they really have a basic understanding of the Bible and who God is and what sin is. And they're 
often ready to accept Christ as their Savior, to believe that Jesus died for their sins. But what we saw, as time went on, some of those kids would go to teen camp where the preaching is very much directed to a teen's level. And they would start to see sin in their life. And they would start to see things going on in their life that didn't match with what they professed to have believed. And so sometimes those kids would come home and proclaim to their parents and to the church that they got saved while they were away at teen camp. But their parents were like, you did that <laughs> this many years ago. I was one of those kids. I didn't, I actually, I was maybe afraid or I don't know if I was, what the term would be, embarrassed. But I was one of those kids who got saved as a five-year-old. But as a teenager, 13 years old at Bible camp, I had a fuller understanding. And then I re, in my heart, I committed my life to Christ again. I confessed my sin and accepted him and his payment for that sin because I understood it better. And so I went through that again. And so is it wrong if a young person reaffirms that? I don't think it's wrong. I think it's, maybe they just didn't have enough of a foundation at that earlier age, a full enough understanding. And as we continue to build, that, that happened. And, and one of the parents was saying that they had a kid multiple years in a row came back having been saved again. <laughs> and he says, I, I don't question it. I just let them, because he, he saw that the, the growth was happening their understanding of the gospel and of them, their own sin was becoming more clear. And it wasn't, it wasn't that they lost or felt that they were losing salvation. It was just, it was a deeper understanding. And so they were growing in doing that. First Corinthians 3 verse 6 talks about, Paul is talking to the church and they're arguing over who they're arguing over who they got saved, who's, who was preaching when they got saved, and what's better. And Paul is dealing with that. And verse verse six, he says, "I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase." It's like I came and I preached, and I gave you a foundation. Then Apollos came and preached. And he built on that foundation. Some of you got saved or made profession then. Others made a profession they believed later. And so they were attributing their salvation to the preacher. Which, which preacher was there when they came to Christ? But Paul's answer was, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. It was God that revealed those truths to you. And made it possible for you to understand and believe that message. It's a process of growth. And so that's what I see happening with the disciples here. So they accept, they got to a certain point, and God's now, Jesus is now building on that foundation that they've, 
that they've laid. They've come to a certain understanding, and now he's going to build on that. And so Jesus describes the, the time and the place and the how of his death. In verse 21, but in verse 22, it says, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Can you imagine? <laughs> Peter just, this isn't necessarily a continuous conversation, right? It says from that time forth. And so this isn't right the next moment. But really, Peter has just acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God. He just proclaimed his belief in who Jesus was. This is the Messiah. And now he's rebuking him and telling him that what he's saying is wrong. Hmm. <laughs> You're just told the person that you proclaimed as the Son of God that he is wrong. Do we do that? Do you ever tell God that he's wrong in putting you where you are, in doing the things that he's doing in your life? We do have a tendency to do that. The, the passage I, I read at our opening this morning in Romans 11. I'll read it again. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Peter's trying to... He, he thinks he knows better than God at this moment. How dare you say you're going to go to this place and let these people do that to you? Not so. That's not going to happen. We're not going to let that happen. This is who Peter's trying to be God's counselor. <laughs> He's trying to tell God what God's plan ought to be. And that's not his place. You want to go back to Romans chapter 9. speaks a little bit more on that same topic. Starting in verse 20. It says, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore, afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews also, but also of the Gentiles. And he saith, also in Hosea, I will call them my people. 
which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. What a statement, and what a way to start this statement. Who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? This is Peter, the created being, telling Christ, who actually formed him in his mother's womb, Christ, who created Peter, gave him life. Peter is now trying to tell him how things ought to be. That is what is happening here at this moment. And, um, and this passage is pointing us to God can do what he wants, and he's right when he does it. And he says, I'm fulfilling the plan that I had laid out a long time ago. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the plan right from the beginning of creation. It's spelled out right through Scripture. And the church, you and I as Gentiles, in the book of Hosea, proclaimed that God would make a way for us as well. And that was his plan. we look at Isaiah um, chapter 55 starting in verse 6 it says seek ye the Lord while he may be found call ye upon him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall be accomplished that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's so much higher than us, right? And his plan is going to be accomplished. The things that he sets out is going to happen. And we, we look at Peter. If you're back in Matthew 16, think about what Peter said here. Jesus just said how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. That doesn't sound very nice. Jesus is going to go and suffer and be killed by the religious leaders. 
Verse 22, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. What is Peter saying? I love you, and I want no harm to come to you. That's not such a bad thing for Peter to have said, is it? Isn't his intentions good and righteous? He wants no harm to come to Christ. But remember, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are higher than ours. And so Peter was looking from a purely earthly perspective. He had no idea the magnificence of God's plan and the importance of this thing happening to Jesus, how critical that was for all of us. Peter just didn't know. Verse 23. But he, but he turned, Jesus turns, and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of man. What a rebuke. Remember what Peter's heart, Peter's mind at this moment was, I just don't want to see you get hurt. And Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan. That's harsh. That doesn't seem like it fits with what Peter's mind was going for at that moment. But what it does is it shows us that when we think we know better than God, those thoughts are coming from Satan. Those thoughts are coming from an evil source. Even when the thoughts themselves, the ideas themselves, appear to be good and righteous. The more Satan can keep us focused on our own ideas, our own wishes, our, our wants, our needs, our problems, our ambitions, the more focused we are on those things, the further we're going to be from knowing God and seeking his will and trusting his direction. If we read on in verse 24, it says, then said Jesus unto the disciples. Don't forget the last thing that Jesus said here in the previous verse. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. That's, he says, you're looking from an earthly perspective. And then Jesus says to the disciples, verse 24, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself. There's a very direct connection between Jesus turning and almost 
it looks like he's calling Peter Satan. It's not so much directed at Peter as a person, but as the ideas that are coming out of his mouth, right? That's, that's the direction here. But he's, Jesus, this connection between Jesus turning and calling Peter Satan, there's a connection between that and the requirement for us to deny ourselves. Because anything other than us denying ourselves, for God's sake, is a satanic ploy to keep us away from God. You know, Jesus didn't accuse Peter of worshiping Satan or taking part in any kind of witchcraft. He wasn't accusing him of idolatry or any obvious sin that we would be able to point to and call wrong. He just wanted something good for Jesus. He wanted Jesus to not be hurt. He's just expressing a desire for Jesus to live a long life, for them to be together, to be able to continue learning and growing and being a part of that magnificent ministry that Jesus was leading. These are good things for Peter to hope for, for good things for him to want. But it's these apparently good moral <laughs> desires that Jesus turns to and calls satanic. Jesus is saying to us, when we look at this passage and we see that next verse that says, we need to, if you don't, you need to deny yourself in order to be following God. Jesus is saying that the things that we long for as normal, moral, upright people are contrary to God. When we're chasing, I don't know a better word for it than the American dream, right? The, the health, wealth, and prosperity. When we're busy trying to acquire nice things for our family, provide a nice home for our kids, comforts for our wives, We want to drive a reliable, decent car. We want to have a nice home to live in. When we're busy with our work, with our school, with taking kids to their hockey practice and their ballet classes, when we're saving up for the bass boat that we've been looking at, <laughs> planning our next family vacation, when we fill all our lives with these things, where is God in that? How much time is left for God in our lives? And when you say it that way, is that what God gets? Is our leftover time? Right? How much time is left for God? Is it just the leftover time that we're giving to him? Jesus and this passage is telling Peter that his priorities are mixed up. He's putting his earthly desires ahead of God's will. Jesus wants us to deny ourselves. And so maybe it's time for us to take a step back 
and take a look at our lives and consider who or what is getting most of our attention. Is our focus on the things that it should be on? Are the things that consume our time and energy the things that are actually important to us? And where does God fit into that equation? I don't remember what we were doing. We were in some kind of class together, me and Jen, and I remember them teaching that the word no is actually a complete sentence. When somebody asks you, can you, and you fill in the blank, whatever that thing is that's going to take some of your time out of your day, out of your week, it is okay to say no. There's no explanation required to go with that answer. It can simply be no, I can't. If there's, do you want no. <laughs> That's the complete answer. You don't have to give the explanation. We are allowed to say no. And maybe it's time that we start saying no to some of the things that are plugging up our life with busyness, that's distracting us from doing the things that we want to be doing, that we call priorities, that we spend so little time actually doing and taking care of. Jen randomly picked, I don't know how random it was, she showed me this uh, video this week, it's Lady Christie Wright, she's a Christian speaker, some kind of motivational business person. And watch this presentation, and it's a presentation to, to people who are too busy, to people who say they just don't have enough time. I need more hours in the day, more days in the week to accomplish all the things that I need to do. And I think most of us understand that. And so she suggested that we ask one question about everything in our lives that consumes our time. And that question wasn't, can I do this? And it wasn't, should I do this? It wasn't even, is it okay if I do this? That question that she says we should ask about everything in our life, is it right, right now? Is this right in my life, right now? You know, when we look at Peter, and he answers this to Jesus. And if we apply that question, at different times his answer would have been right. When the people were picking up stones to throw at Jesus, to stone him to death, and that wasn't his time, Peter would have been right to stand up and defend him and protect his life. When the crowd was ready to push Jesus off the cliff, to kill him, Peter would have been right to stand up and defend his life. It would have been right, right now, if he was asking that question at that time. But in this situation, 
when Jesus is saying, at this time, on the Passover, in this city, and in this way, I am going to be killed. And it's God's will that that happened. It's no longer right for Peter to defend his life, is it? It wasn't right right now. There's a time and a place for many different things. And so that thing wasn't necessarily wrong in a general sense, but at that specific time and place, it was wrong. This question forces us to consider the bigger picture, doesn't it? When we ask, is this right right now, what we're doing is we're putting that thing into the context of our whole life. It's no longer a question of, is this thing sinful? Is this thing morally acceptable? It isn't a matter of being able to fit it into our schedule or fit it into my budget. The question is asking if this thing fits with my priorities in my life right now. It's asking, is this thing going to take my attention away from something else that I should be giving my attention to? Is this right right now? Doesn't decide if this thing can ever be a part of my life. If it can ever be put into my schedule or my budget. It just puts it into the context of our current life circumstances. Galatians 5. Verse 16. It says, This I say then, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these, th these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. You cannot do the things that you would. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not always going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. We need to consider the bigger picture. Is this God's will for my life today? <laughs> We've made some major decisions for our life this past week. And I had to ask that very question. Is this right right now? And I believe the answer was yes. God's preparing me for something new. And I need to shut out all the other things that are eating my time and my attention so that I can focus on the thing that God wants me to be focused on at this time. I can focus more on doing what's right right now. And I have to say no to a bunch of these other things. In the next verse, verse 25 in Matthew 16, it says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world 
and lose his own soul. And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What do all of our possessions get us at the end of our life? <laughs> Absolutely nothing, right? <laughs> a fancier box to be put in the ground in? What good do all the hobbies and all the traveling experiences that we go through in life, what eternal value is there in that BMW, <laughs> that fancy host, the quads and the snowmobiles and the boats and, and all these toys and trinkets, whatever it is that's in our life, we all have something that we're spending time, money, energy doing and it consumes us, doesn't it? What value is there in those things? Where do we need to deny ourselves and say, this isn't serving God, this isn't serving the bigger picture, it's just serving my flesh. God wants us to deny ourselves. And he makes very clear, what is it what is a man profited if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? We know the names of many billionaires, don't we? They're in the news on a regular basis. How many of those do you think are going to be in heaven? How many of those are acknowledging God in their life? Being willing to humble themselves to say that I need Jesus. <laughs> they are their own gods, right? Money is their god. The end of our life. Verse 27 says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. There's a judgment coming. At the end of this life, Christ is going to come and he is going to stand as judge of every one of us. And the question is, what sentence are you going to hear at that time? Is it, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or is it, depart from me, I never knew you? The things that we fill our time with don't have to be bad things. It doesn't have to be anything that would even be able to be pointed at as being sinful. But if they keep us from pursuing God, then those things are put there by Satan and should be treated exactly the way that Jesus turned to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He confronts him about where those things belong, where those motives are coming from. What are your priorities? Do you savor the things that are of God? Are the things that you're doing right, right now? Let's pray.